Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. This evening, we'll be speaking with historian Mia Bay, who was a fellow at the center in 2009-2010, and may be the first fellow ever to have an article about her work featured in Car and Driver magazine. Mia is the Roy F. and Jeanette P. Nichols Professor of American History at the University of Pennsylvania. Prior to arriving at Penn, she was a professor of history at Rutgers and director of that university's Center for Race and Ethnicity. Professor Bay is a scholar of American and African-American intellectual, cultural, and social history, whose publications include The White Image in the Black Mind, African-American Ideas About White People, 1830 to 1925, To Tell the Truth Freely, The Life of Ida B. Wells, and an edited volume of Ida B. Wells' work, The Light of Truth, The Writings of an Anti-Lynching Crusader, and she is currently completing a book on the history of African-American ideas about Thomas Jefferson. She's also the co-author with Waldo Martin and Deborah Gray White of the textbook, Freedom on My Mind, a history of African-Americans with documents and the editor of two collections of essays towards an intellectual history of black women, which she co-edited with Farah Jasmine Griffin, Martha S. Jones and Barbara Savage and Race and Retail, Consumption Across the Color Line, which she co-edited with Ann Fabian. In addition to her fellowship from the National Humanities Center, Mia's work has been supported by the Fletcher Foundation, the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello, the American Council of Learned Societies, Boston University's Institute on Race and Social Division, Harvard's Charles Warren Center, and W.E.B. Du Bois Centers, and the American Historical Association. An organization of American historians distinguished lecturer, Mia is a member of the executive board of the Society of American Historians and serves on the editorial boards of Reviews in American History, the Journal of African American History, and the African American Intellectual History Society's Black Perspectives blog. Mia has graciously agreed to speak with us this evening about her most recent book, Traveling Black, A Social History of Segregated Transportation. Please join me in welcoming Professor Mia Bay. Mia, I learned so much in reading your book, and I say that as someone who taught in the classroom and taught American history in the classroom for 16 years. And I was alternately outraged enraged and inspired by the conditions that African-American travelers endured, and I think also by their creative responses to discrimination. And sometimes I wondered if this wasn't really a history of American racism. Why is it that travel is such a central site for conflict, racial conflict, and injustice in American history? Well, that was something I learned a lot about while writing the book and, and was really one of the big questions I came into it, but came into it asking um, a lot of really key moments in the history of racial discrimination and also the history of African-American struggles against its center around travel, Plessy versus Ferguson, the famous 
court case in which the Supreme Court ruled that things could be separate but equal was actually a railroad case. People sometimes forget them. The civil rights movement started around the Montgomery bus boycott. So that was one of my big questions. And I think it is partially travel becomes really big because um, travel brings people together um, in small spaces um, on, you know, what sometimes seem like they might be equal terms. They bring strangers together. Travel also sort of changes enormously over the last two centuries or so. And it, it kind of creates new kinds of space that people have to navigate. The beginnings of things like railroads or even common carriers like stagecoaches is really about um, what happens in an urbanizing society where people are moving around more and where you no longer are simply encountering people you know. And I think that's one of the reasons why travel becomes a flashpoint for racial conflict. But also the other thing is that a lot of this is happening against the sort of broad drama of slavery and abolition. Some of the early, most of the early common carriers like stagecoaches and steamships really are uh, sort of widely used starting in the early 19th century when you begin to have the abolition of slavery in the North and then things like railroads really become ubiquitous in the late 19th century when you have the abolition of slavery in the South. So travel poses challenges to how people are gonna be organized in a society in which you have a group of people who are formerly enslaved. You have an extraordinary series of quotations, even just in your introduction, um, by prominent African-Americans whom I'm aware of in other settings. And mm -hmm. one of the most, and all of them are poignant and well-chosen, but one that really hit me personally was uh, this fabulous, this extraordinary quotation from Congressman George White mm -hmm. in 1902, famous in North Carolina for other reasons. And speaking to, uh, speaking about segregated transit, he said something like, we have no railroads and steamboats of our own, and we must use yours. And that line um, was so poignant for me because he was also, of course, uh, in just about the same year, um, famous for talking about his eviction from Congress and through gerrymandering, I believe, and, mm -hmm. through, the, and through the general kind of removal of African-Americans from authority. Mm -hmm. when, when you were going through these stories, how did you keep from being devastated by the poignancy of, of loss and of suffering that you were reading? Um, I think the way I dealt with it was really by just trying to uncover the story. I mean, I felt like this was a story that hadn't really been told, that it was a story that really like people had left careful record of, and that the challenge for me was trying to understand exactly you know, what that record was and what people are saying. So when I came across particularly quotes like that, you know, that to me said a lot about why travel was this continuous issue. It was like, there was, you couldn't get, you couldn't avoid travel. You could avoid segregation in some other arenas, but everyone had to ride the railroad. Everyone had to take, you know, buses. You just, and, and there were attempts by African-Americans to create their own travel facilities, but that's not really the way travel works. You know, in the end, it was very centralized. Mm -hmm. um, you have um, quite a litany, quite an extraordinary list of books that you've written on a range of topics. And I'm wondering why you wrote this book and how it fits into your research and writing interests, the sort of trajectory of Professor Mia Bay. That's a really good question, because this book in some ways is sort of which one of these is not like the others in, compared to my previous <laughs> books. Um, I was someone who trained in intellectual history, and my first book was very much about ideas, African-American ideas about white people. I wrote about um, Ida B. Wells, partially because she was a thinker. But over the years, I also began to become, because I did African-American history, increasingly aware of and interested in the ways and how people sort of get their ideas and how much of them, how much, how often they kind of encounter their ideas about on the ground, especially um, for African-Americans. Ida B. Wells was a case in point. She did not have an extensive education. A lot of her ideas really came out of her personal experience. 
And among the personal experiences that were most formative for Wells was actually the experience of being kicked out of a lady's car on a train um, in the early 1880s before there was sort of legal Jim Crow in Tennessee, but when they were already beginning to kind of draw the color line on trains. And for her, that kind of posed the dilemma of like, what, what do you make of a society that is somehow saying that because you are Black, you are not a lady? Um, so that got me intrigued by about segregation's origins and also the ways in which travel was sort of as Tom, historian Thomas Holt has described it once, it's kind of a race-making experience. It was one where people had to kind of confront very basic questions about who you are and what that entitles you to. So that's what kind of led me to this book, which was a book that wasn't really on a plan. It was more like it was something I became curious about and began researching and it just went on and on and on until it eventually became a book. <laughs> Um, your story about Ida B. Wells and her childhood, uh, it's really a horrifying story to read, mm -hmm. um, her childhood encounter with just uh, vicious racism in that car, um, mm -hmm. is, is a reminder about something that runs through your story very strongly, which is the way that, that Black women figure in the book. Um, mm -hmm. Can you tell me more about that? Why, why this, this strong thread and how do they figure in this particular story about racism and segregation of African-Americans? Well, there's a variety of reasons they figure really prominently, but one, especially in the 19th century, is the fact that this, the system of racial segregation on trains, what came to be called Jim Crow, in which African-Americans had to ride in a separate Jim Crow car, or separate Jim Crow compartment, is it's predated by a sort of gender segregation system um, of ladies' cars and smoking cars, which um, were really common from early on in the railroads. Railroads started to offer ladies' cars so that they could attract women to riding trains because um, trains were thought to be dangerous. They were often filled, smoke-filled and filled with men who were chewing snuff. So they offered these sort of nicer separate ladies' cars, which became synonymous with kind of first-class accommodations that they didn't necessarily cost anymore. Um, and this was the terrain on which um, the presence of Black people was first contested. I mean, people could, almost anyone could ride in the smoking car, but in the ladies' car, there were questions about whether African-Americans could ride in them, whether or not they were women, whether or not they were ladies. So um, a lot of the people to first challenge um, segregation on trains were, in fact, Black women. And um, so long as the, this segregation ran along the lines of gender rather than race, they, they, they sort of could win their cases. They didn't win them every time, but they did win them often enough that the Southern states began to move towards another system of what they call colored cars. Um, so this was, um, so black women figure really prominently in this struggle because they have this sort of title to the ladies cars, um, even if it's not always honored and which they fight for. And then black women would continue to figure really prominently anti, in anti-transportation segregation struggles, precisely because it was a sort of tremendous hardship for women, especially um, once they were not, you know, once the colored car was sort of replaced the ladies' cars, the kind of cars that black women would have to ride in on the train would often be smoke filled, filled with men, including white men who had gone there to like gamble or play cards and sort of harass the women. Um, they would be cars in which there was, you know, in which there were no women's restrooms. So like almost every kind of protective measure that transportation providers were offering to middle-class travelers was sort of withheld from Black women. Um, and this was something that they fought against and, and found like deeply inconvenient and often quite scary. You're, one of the striking um, things about, one of the many striking things about your book is the ways that regional differences emerged. And you mentioned just now how after the Civil War, Southern mm -hmm. states would begin to impose a new form of segregation with the colored cars. 
But you you quote, you know, you point out that earlier, in fact, it was northern states mm-hmm. which often led the way with segregated transportation. And for example, you have this astonishing quote from from Alexis de Tocqueville um, in eighteen in the early eighteen thirties. In the north, the white no longer distinctly perceives the barrier which separates him from the degraded race. He shuns the Negro with more pertinacity since he fears lest they should someday be confounded together. And I'm I was struck in your story by this, this migration, this, mm-hmm. this, um, this transformation of segregation in the North and its emergence in the South where it had not previously been. Would you talk more about those regional differences in the antebellum and then later in the post-Civil War? Sure. sure. I mean, the basic reason why um, travel segregation emerges in the North, the first Jim Crow cars is, um, well, there's, there's a couple of basic reasons. One is that common carriers like railroads, steam, steamship companies, things that kind of travel, carried large numbers of people really do arrive first in the North. In the South, people are still using kind of sort of more private transportation and railroads um, take longer to be built. But then the other thing is that so long as most Black people are enslaved in the South, there's very little anxiety among white Southerners about where Blacks travel on the train. Slave owners often choose to and insist having their, at least their sort of servant, uh, enslaved servants traveling directly with them. Um, They might put others in, you know, in, in freight cars or whatever, but it's not, it's, it's not a controversial I- issue precisely because they feel completely confident that they have complete control over where Black people travel. What you have happening in the North in the 1830s and onward is that African-Americans are free and there's increasingly a middle-class population that wants to ride in ladies' cars or it wants to ride in first-class accommodations on steamships. And this causes profound social unease in a society that is not entirely used to um, Black people having freedom and is actually used to most African-Americans in past being enslaved and sort of, again, not being free to travel anywhere but where their um, owners wanted them to travel. So they're, where the enslavers wanted them to travel. So, so the, the sort of presence of these middle-class black people, especially traveling on equal terms with white people is what push, you know, pushes um, Southern railroad, I mean, Northern railroad owners and steamship captains towards these systems of segregation. Yeah, that there, there are many ways in which um, race corrodes class, you already mentioned gender earlier, mm-hmm. the ways that, that smoking cars, that, that African-American women in the North would be pushed into these cars meant for men and really for a low grade of men. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you, you note at one point that some of the early segregated cars in the North, or I should say early cars where African-Americans were forced to mm-hmm. sit, even if they had purchased first-class tickets, mm-hmm. were, were called immigrant cars. They were, yeah. I mean, they were car, you know, they were, they were, some of them were half price, that some of them were half price cars generally. Um, and in areas where you had way more immigrants than black people, they could be called immigrant cars. They were just where, you know, someone who was very poor and willing to sit in an uncomfortable car, they typically barely had seats and, you know, like they just were, they were just, and sometimes they doubled as the luggage car. And this is where, you know, poor people would travel. Um, and, um, and, and, and that was fine, except there were middle-class people, black or white, did not want to travel in them. So no matter how educated or even wealthy, or even if you were supposed to be a member of a protected gender, mm-hmm. all of these things could be corroded and erased by the presence of race. Yeah, and that was what was infuriating because people, people would pay to sit in the ladies' car or the first-class car, or in some cases you would have um, black abolitionists like Frederick Douglass traveling with white abolitionists and, the, you know, sort of the black person in the group would be, you know, told to go into these um, second class half price cars um, and um, increasingly sort of regular accommodations were off limits to African-Americans. Well, later in your book, you march through a series of forms of transportation, but also um, you tell the story of Plessy versus Ferguson, mm-hmm. and and that 
um, of course, it stands in for many Americans as the story of segregated transportation. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about why, why New Orleans and why the South? Why did that particular form of transportation, of segregation rather, emerge in, in, that, in that place and in, in the South rather than in Northern spaces? Well, part of why segregation, um, well, there's many reasons, but part of it is that during the antebellum era, Northern Blacks successfully fought off the Jim Crow car in, mo- in many states. Um, it, was never, it was never mandated by law and they took their protests to legislatures, to, to abolitionists. Um, and with the Civil War, they sort of upped the ante on insisting on some kind of equality in transportation. So in the years following the Civil War, this kind of formal segregation becomes less common in the North at just as the South really begins to get trans- wide, you know, large transportation systems, part of what they do after the South and the Civil War is, of course, build a lot of railroads. Um, so all of a sudden, the South confronts the same problem that the North had confronted, and it confronts it at a time when, um, you know, there's tremendous struggles on the ground between Blacks and whites over what kind of status Blacks are going to occupy in Southern society. And from the, from, you know, from the end of the Civil War onward, whites do not want to see Blacks traveling on equal terms. They don't want to um, think that African-Americans are going to achieve social mobility or have title to ladies' cars or any kind of middle class accommodations. And by the 1880s, after after the end of Reconstruction, when the South is kind of rebuilding itself as it would like to be, they begin to pass separate car laws that relegate Blacks to what to Jim Crow cars. And Plessy versus Ferguson is sort of the end rather than the beginning of that process. It's already sort of fat accompli in most states and African-Americans are trying to figure out how to combat it. And Plessy versus Ferguson, the resistance is led by um, New Orleans free people of color who are who really lose a lot of status in this transition. They, many of them had previously been at least uh, often able to enjoy first class accommodations or achieve a certain respect. And now they are being classed. Um, you know, increasingly put in this um, inferior class of people. Um, and they're, they're trying to, they were trying to challenge the legality of it and whether it was in fact, um, you know, whether they did, whether Blacks didn't have protections under the 14th Amendment and the other Reconstruction Era amendments that might protect them from it. So they were unsuccessful in doing so, but that was the effort. One of our viewers has just asked a question uh, over on our YouTube stream, and they ask, um, what's, how do you respond to the recent pardoning of Homer Plessy by the governor of <laughs> New Orleans, <laughs> of Louisiana? Um, <laughs> it, it seems like it was a really long time coming, and... Um, you know, I don't know if he wanted to be pardoned. Homer Plessy was someone who chosen was chosen to be defiant precisely to trigger that court case. And I, I think what he wanted to do was win, but <laughs> um, I guess, I guess pardoning is a good thing. <laughs> an interesting gesture, right? And we're yeah, in a time, it really yeah, is. it is an interesting one. <laughs> so you just mentioned that Homer, uh, that uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in, in your telling is a kind of ending as opposed to a beginning. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and once again, I'm, this is one of the many astonishing things about your book for someone who, mm-hmm. who has taught segregation in American history and an American history survey. And another way that you flip endings and beginnings is in your conversation about the Montgomery bus boycott. And mm-hmm. you note that it is generally discussed as the culmination, excuse me, it's generally not discussed as the end, as the culmination, as the mm-hmm. flowering of a long history of protest against segregated transit. Um, tell me more about why you wrote that sentence and, and what that means for us to think of it differently in this way. Well, I think, I mean, at a most basic level, there were so many Rosa Parks before Rosa Parks. I mean, there were so many individuals as well as groups that organized around challenging 
segregated transportation, early civil rights movements, such as the Niagara movement, um, the NAACP all, we all had it on their agenda. You have all of these individuals. One of the things that's striking to me that you kind of see in the book is that, you know, virtually any black leader that you can think of had some sort of battle over segregated transportation at some point, whether it was Sojourner Truth fighting from being thrown off streetcars to W.B. Du Bois trying to sue the railroads. This is, this is just a long, you know, the, the resistance had been ongoing for years before the Montgomery bus boycott. And it raises kind of interesting questions about activism and failure because it was like people kept on doing it. And then there was sort of this long history of failure, which somehow made it you know, made people forget it ever happened. But in fact, it was like a tradition. People were, people were fighting this and, and sort of aware of how difficult it was, which I think in the end was helpful to the strategies that finally brought success. Yeah, it, it, in your telling, and I think in, in you, you help us to see that uh, there's nothing accidental about the mm-hmm. Montgomery bus boycott or the fact that it was transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, that in fact, this was a carefully, this was a, a, an element of, of injustice and segregation, discrimination that mattered enormously in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And that it was a logical and uh, pl- place to, to focus protest. So there may have been failure, but at the same time, it seems like a fight worth fighting that in fact had to be fought over and over and over. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges of travel was that it was just I mean, it was kind of impossible. It was, a, the system was so patchwork and crazy. It was kind of impossible to honor. It was impossible to escape, but it was sort of impossible to honor it correctly. You never kind of knew whether you were doing the right thing. And you also had, you know, people who were sort of individually abusive to people around um, transportation segregation. I mean, one of Rosa Parks' big issues with that bus driver was that he was horrible to people. He'd like close the doors and leave without them. Like, so it was like a very difficult system to navigate in a, in a way that meant that it was something that kept causing um, conflict in and of itself. So one of the um, great things about your book is the way that you approach all of these mediums of travel, these, 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 uh, I'm thinking, for example, you have a chapter on traveling by car. Mm-hmm. traveling by bus, traveling by plane. You reference the recent uh, revival of interest in the Green Book, the, mm-hmm. the African-American Traveler's Book. Um, how did each of these forms of travel, so different on the surface, mm-hmm. right? The private mm-hmm. car versus the, the sort of public bus for local transit and, and interstate transit, and of course the airplane in our time. How were each of those distinct and perhaps yet also similar in the fact that they were segregated, that they still remain places of segregation. Right. That was something that absolutely fascinated me as I sort of put the story together. Um, And because what I found was that African-Americans look to each new form of transportation as, as a, you know, a place where they could possibly escape um, discrimination from railroads onward. People came to railroads after being discriminated against on stagecoach and steamship, and they hoped that railroads would not um, require African-Americans to travel in lesser accommodations. That would be wrong. Cars, there was really high hopes for cars, and you had a lot of African-Americans buying cars early or um, being very interested in the technology. And then in each case, um, from cars to buses to airplanes, there would always be a disappointment as um, these, you know, these very technically different forms of transportation would nonetheless develop kind of systems of mobility, which privilege some travelers over others. Um, Early buses, for example, initially did not necessarily pick up African-American riders, initially they were kind of a semi-private system and they would sort of pick and choose who they took. And then once they started to, there was this relegation to the back of the bus, which in fact in early buses was the worst possible place to sit. Likewise with planes, you saw sort of in the early days, some exclusion and then a relegation to the worst of seats. And then after that, a sort of relegation to putting all 
black passengers in a given row. So what you had the same impulse behind it was always about separation, sort of putting African-Americans out of the way, exempting them from the kind of whatever kind of more luxurious um, accommodations there were and also kind of creating a sort of travel world, which is sort of targeted as its ideal traveler, sort of white middle-class American and treated people who didn't fall in that category as if they were unwelcome. So that's why you get, for instance, even, you know, even in gas stations, this would become a major site for discrimination among African-Americans. There were gas stations that didn't even want to sell gas to black people. Mm. And this was because gas stations really evolved as a way to sell virtually indistinguishable oil and petroleum products <laughs> to, um, you know, to a middle-class consumer who didn't want to go to the hardware store, which is where these things were initially sold and wanted to travel comfortably. And women were a big target for gas stations. And the emphasis about them was that they were clean domestic spaces in which you wouldn't encounter anyone, but the, you know, nicest sort of people. And this caused them to often be hostile to black travelers. Hmm. It's, it's such a striking um, blow against this, you know, uh, historians of, of science and technology sometimes talk about technolo technological determinism. Mm -hmm. They war against it, the idea that a technology will determine its uses if you, mm -hmm. you know, we are all sort of forced to behave mm -hmm. according to what the technology demands. But in, in, in your story, it's more like persistent racism, that the technology may trans be transformed, may seem utterly different, as you pointed out, the difference mm -hmm. between a car and a bus, for example. Mm -hmm. And yet here we go again with these, these persistent forms of segregation and separation? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, we, you know, we always encounter technology very socially. I mean, think about even flying today. It's one of the most class things we ever do. Like, you know, from where, where people, when they get, when people get on the plane, exactly how much they paid for their ticket. Um, you know, we create a kind of social world for even highly technological endeavors. More so than ever, it seems to me. Yes, I think so. So I'm, I keep waiting for our, our viewers to, to light up with a whole bunch of questions. And I do see one that I really want to ask you. Okay. Um, and it comes from Robert Newman, who is the president and director of the center. He asked what the film The Green Book got especially right and perhaps what it also got wrong. That's a good question. Um, well, The Green Book was... Uh, wonderful for introducing the Green Book um, to people just as a kind of, you know, it, it, it was, you know, a phenomenon that people had almost kind of forgotten this, this guidebook to tell Black travelers where to go, but it did get a number of things wrong as, as many movies do. I mean, one was the idea that the Green Book was a, a kind of actual completely reliable solution to people's problems. That was, um, that was not true. I mean, the Green Book was published once a year. Um, its listings were um, sort of advertising and some, often they were out of date. Um, they didn't cover all possible areas. Um, people who actually used the book reported that, you know, like it just wasn't always, wasn't always reliable. Another thing that it gets wrong is, um, or people have begun to get wrong is the green book is like the only book of its kind. There were a whole bunch. Um, and then another thing is that maybe there's, there's a whole kind of system of how people actually traveled that was sort of beyond those books. A lot of it was sort of word of mouth. Um, and that's actually where the books originated. So the book's idea that this sort of white chauffeur would be the expert leading this black musician through the, uh, through the South is probably wildly off. I mean, people really did things like they would, you know, ride into, um, you know, they would ask black porters where the black neighborhood was. They would stop the black mailman. They would uh, call friends. A lot of black travelers, um, you know, would travel to relatives. You know, they had all sorts of ways of, of sort of getting around basic travel stuff that often really relied on word of mouth. Um, so, and, and probably in real life, a, a black driver is probably what this guy needed. 
Um, the Green Book and, and certainly the kind of community pooling of resources you've just described are a kind of resistance, uh, mm-hmm. not an adaptation exactly, but an, perhaps that too, but certainly a form of resistance against this segregation. And I, I wonder if you would say more about that ver- those various kinds of resistance. You mentioned previously that in the pre-Civil War North, that mm-hmm. uh, African middle, middle class and free African-Americans would would sue. They would use the mm-hmm. courts. Of course, mm-hmm. that didn't stop. What other mm-hmm. forms of resistance did you encounter in this book, um, perhaps that surprised you or that we, we might be surprised by? Well, there were all kinds. Um, I mean, there were people who organized their life around not participating in this system when at all possible. So um, there were some people who got cars and drove cars because they didn't want to ever sit on a segregated bus or a segregated train. And they didn't want their children exposed to such things so that they wouldn't, you know, wouldn't allow them to use things. So there, there was this one thing was just an attempt to actually not, not participate in the system, which was could be impossible to do in the sense that sometimes you really did need to perhaps take the train somewhere. Um, people also um, did things like charter their own um, train cars, like groups who were going somewhere would charter a whole, they would charter an excursion train. Um, Booker T. Washington, when he couldn't um, get um, a Pullman um, Pullman compartment, which were these sort of separate compartments for middle-class travelers. He charted, charted an entire Pullman car in Texas once, which caused some controversy in the newspapers who were like, why, you know, why does he consider himself above traveling Jim Crow? And he said, you know, I, I am traveling, <laughs> traveling by train through Texas takes several days and I'm supposed to give a talk at the end of it. I cannot sit up on a wooden chair for three days. So he was not even ashamed of it. So people tried to buy their way out of it. It didn't always work. They also tried to talk their way into these separate Pullman compartments that were on a lot of trains that were operated by the Pullman sh- company out of Chicago, which did not have any kind of official segregation policy. Um, and, you know, sometimes that would involve like getting a white person to make a reservation for a Pullman car or various sort of tricks or getting um, some people who were who looked white would sort of pass to travel in white accommodations. So there's all different kinds of resistance from direct to otherwise, um, people would refuse to move um, and end up in jail or end up in court. So it was pretty much continuous. And, and I was surprised by how many cases there were. Um, in the case of buses, especially when people encountered discrimination in the North, there were a lot of civil suits, which people sometimes won. So um, we have a couple of questions now from viewers who are interested in traveling black in our own time in the modern period. Mm-hmm. And, and this is this is very well phrased. Could you talk a bit about modern manifestations of traveling while black and how they're similar to and different from the historical examples that you've been describing? Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's something also that I thought I've been thinking a lot about and continue to think a lot about. Um, on the one hand, I would say that the sort of the 1964 Civil Rights Act's Act and other previous legal changes that sort of got rid of things like colored cars and um, whites only spaces, um, you know, was a great civil rights victory that people worked for for literally generations. Um, and, 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 you know, we need to appreciate it as such. But on the other hand, it's hard not to notice that, um, you know, within a couple of decades, um, we no longer actually have a lot of trains or buses. The, the, um, the spaces that were freed up by these victories have, have begun to disappear. We have much less commitment to public transportation. Um, for a variety of reasons, um, our society really sort of embraced the car as the primary form of transportation. Um, and so um, those achievements are not fully enjoyed by people. And then when you look at the car as a form of transportation, it perpetuates certain kinds of inequities. Um, 
um, whites are more likely to own cars than blacks or Hispanics who have some of the lowest car owning rates in the country um, and blacks and Hispanics both in, in encounter all sorts of inequities in buying cars, securing credit to buy cars, what they pay for insurance, um, access to, you know, sort of transportation. So you have really persistent transportation inequities that now shape themselves largely around a car-centric economy. Um, and they include not only these kind of economic things I've just discussed, but also things having to do with policing, the kind of um, traffic stops that became increasingly common starting in the Reagan era when you when the police began to just sort of stop people and search their cars at random, uh, typically targeted black and Hispanic drivers. So travel inequities are in certain ways as bad as they ever were, especially when it comes to travel being dangerous. Um, I think a lot of people do feel like for African-Americans traveling by car is dangerous or potentially so. One of the striking things about your book is the ways that the segregation and the racism that African-Americans faced was sometimes uh, due to very individual choices, like the conductors mm -hmm. in those pre-Civil War trains who had enormous power. Mm -hmm. they, could, they could enforce rules. They might mm -hmm. make up rules. Mm -hmm. They might go against company policy or they might embrace company policy. Um, so in the one hand, therefore, there are racist individuals imposing segregation in those, in those uh, spaces. And on the other hand, there were the kinds of systemic racism mm -hmm. that you just described when it comes to access, for example, to, to vehicles. Um, what about the airplane in particular in our own time? I mean, it, it seems like a practice as, as one of our, as one of our, uh, our viewers has asked that, um, that racism on airplanes would, would be something that modern companies would try to suppress. I imagine the viewer thinks the bad press associated with being caught mm -hmm. um, institutionalizing racism is, is a bad thing for companies. What about the airplane and its and strategies there? Um, well, the early kind of discrimination people faced on airplanes kind of took, took place kind of covertly. I mean, in the 50s, they had kind of systems of assigning Black people to their own separate row of seats. Um, that um, only sort of were exposed when someone who worked for the airline finally spoke out. Um, and in recent years, you know, there are reports of discrimination, uh, discrimination on air, airlines, um, including there was a period of time where NAACP had American Airlines under some kind of sanction. Um, and part of what goes on there is, I mean, you talked about the various sources of discrimination um, beyond the people who uh, work, you know, for airlines or there and systemic racism, you also have passengers and, and uh, it seems like a lot of some of the conflicts that take place on airlines are around um, other passengers kind of insisting that the black person should not be in the first class seat or in the first class line and airlines kind, kind of trying to decide to draw the line draw the line about who they're going to support on these on these issues um airlines sort of face the dilemma that there's sort of a, a line they they have a, they operate a very class system of travel and there's kind of a conflation of class and race in our society that plays out on the ground in airports and on airplanes in ways that airlines have not found to entirely deal with and some of the kind of systemic racism issues play down even even to the point of like the point of entry or leaving, there's been um, discussions of black women being singled out for searches, the kind of discrimination on the ground that has to do with perhaps individuals, but still problematic. Yeah, these opportunities remain. Right. Um, we've, we've, we have, um, this long history in your book that, mm -hmm. that, as I said, sometimes seemed to me to be a history of American racism, mm -hmm. a kind of a view into the, the everyday realities. Because transportation is such a, a ubiquitous part of a life, and especially a modern life, um, it, it becomes a kind of focal point for that. When you, when you wrote this book, were you intending this to be read by undergraduate students? 
by professors or academics or your colleagues like me? Um, or did you have a broader audience in mind? Who were you, who were you writing for, Professor Bay? I think all of the above. I mean, I was trying, I mean, I both was, I was trying to engage in history that I actually do think that scholars need to understand. And on that level, I didn't want to leave out any of the nuance and complexity. But on the other hand, you know, what made me want to write the book was the, you know, the tremendous amount of stories to be told, um, you know, which I felt like, you know, did have a kind of, you know, potential for popular audiences to read it. If I faulted some of the previous work I had read on transportation is it sort of focused on, you know, what was sort of happening in the courts. And I really wanted to get to what was happening on the ground. And I felt like that was something that, you know, everyone should know about. So I tried to write for a popular audience as much as possible, but without kind of oversimplifying the incredibly complicated story I ended up discovering once I started researching. You have to forgive me for this, but as someone who has shared a classroom, in other words, that we have that in common, I, I, I sometimes wondered if, if students, um, I sometimes wondered if students really wanted to be told the stories of other people's lives 150, 200 <laughs> years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. And, mm -hmm. and I guess, you know, it's, but it's a fair question. Why should they care about the individual experiences of people long gone, and in many cases, long forgotten. I mean, you, you point out that sometimes the only piece of the story we have is a mm -hmm. fragment, a newspaper account, a, a memoir, or a letter. Why should we care about this long history of segregation in travel and the reality of traveling black? Well, I think that there's, I mean, I think there's many things that students can take out of it. I mean, it makes, thinking about the history of traveling black makes you think about moving through the world even today and like what on what terms individuals move through the world. Um, certainly students encountering this kind of material actually often have kind of conversations about how they move through the world and what, you know, whether they encounter discrimination or not. And, they, and if they don't encounter it, they have thoughts about how other people move through the world. Um, Students also in thinking about this story have are sort of provoked to think about how people in the past have struggled with certain problems for like generations. It, it's sort of a lesson about like um, activism and how long and how difficult it can be to kind of challenge something and 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 you know that there is a kind of history of activism behind. Um, you know, the sort of simple stories we sometimes hear about, you know, Rosa Parks being tired and sitting down one day, there's, that's not really how social change comes. Um, and, you know, people instead, you see that there's people on the ground, you know, fighting in all sorts of ways. And I, th I think it's important for students to think about that. And I think they actually do find it interesting. I have to say that anybody who picks up this book is going to be uh, going to find it interesting. And I found yeah, it right. profoundly moving. Um, you know, so I've asked you a lot of questions, <laughs> and uh, and mostly they've come from me. Some have come from our viewing audience as well. But I'm wondering if there were questions that you rather hoped or expected me to ask, and that I have not. Are there themes in this book that you haven't yet had a chance to describe for this for this audience? Well, I guess one theme I would mention is that you know one of the one of the things the book ends up emphasizing is that. While the South, you know, from, from the 1880s onward had this sort of legal segregation, a system of Jim Crow laws where, you know, the trains had to be segregated, waiting stations, waiting rooms had to be segregated. Segregation was very, very common in the North um, to the point where it would be, you know, you can't really write a history of segregated transportation that looks only at the South. Um, in the North, it was, rarely sanctioned by law, but it occurred anyway, and it would take the form of hotels that did not um, allow black passengers, allow black um, travelers to stay there. It would take the form of railroad railroads, which would put people in the Jim Crow car leaving, leaving from New York, Los Angeles, or Chicago. There was a way in which the 
um, Jim Crow extended across the South borders in sometimes unpredictable ways, but wherever they traveled, African-Americans would find some Jim Crow. So that sort of ends up being one of the themes of the book is that it's, it's you know, it's on the one hand describing a system that becomes most, you know, most formalized in the South, but it's something that it also is describing something that is happening virtually everywhere. You remind me of a sort of annual rediscovery in the United States of Martin Luther King Jr., whose, mm-hmm. whose holiday is approaching um, as we speak. And and that rediscovery is is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. But I but I sometimes wonder if if for some Americans, it's an opportunity to sort of close the book on, mm-hmm. on racism that, um, you know, Dr. King destroyed, this is this, the simple story, Dr. King destroyed legal segregation in America, the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think your comments suggest, and your earlier comments about the inequities of traveling black today suggest that that's a, a particularly unhelpful version of the past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it suggests that we have to kind of um, look around our world and pay attention to what's going on and pay attention to the way that people are navigating space and the way that segregation of all kinds tends to persist and most, most in particular in sort of housing and sort of how people navigate race and space because, um, you know, the, the patterns in our society today are shaped by the past and they're also often kind of reinforced by things that are going on today. Thank you uh, for this opportunity to speak with you. Um, You may also visit nationalhumaniteiescenter.org to learn more about the center's work and other opportunities to explore the humanities. Thank you, Dr. Bay, and good evening, everyone, and stay well. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.